I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, the podcast from The Recount. In a few minutes, Steve and I will be joined by Representative Raquel Tarlan of Arizona. And we're going to go deep into that critical battleground state. But first, it's been a busy week in America. Well, it is a remarkable week in American history, David. And what I'd say is that I hope that the president is sufficiently recovered within a month that, and the first lady, that both of them can face humiliation and electoral repudiation and good health at the hands of the American people. And I don't mean to sound unsympathetic, but this is the president of the United States and his lie where he dismissed the lethality of this has killed at least 100,000 people. If we had the same mortality rate as the Germans did, there'd be 150,000 more Americans alive. And so there's no person in our country of 330 million people who has done more to try to get the coronavirus or done more to spread the coronavirus than Donald Trump. And so I do wish him recovery, but there is an aspect of this that is he reaped what you sow. What I hope is to all the Trump supporters out there who've been lied to, manipulated, used and abused by this con man. If any of you are listening, At long last, I beg of you, take this seriously. This virus can kill you. He's in Walter Reed because this virus kills people. And it's killed 200,000 plus of us. Yeah, I mean, listen, the numbers are startling. I mean, Joe Biden mentioned this statistic in the debate. One out of every thousand African-Americans in our country dead. I think we're now to one out of every 1,000 people in Mississippi dead. And the challenge here has been really all around the world, even in places ruled by despots and autocrats. Basically, the entire country has done what needed to be done from leaders on down. Uh, And in this country, we've had about a third of the country not take it seriously because they're told by their leader not to. So, Steve, we don't know yet. We're talking Friday. You know, maybe over the weekend, we're going to learn more. So first of all, let's talk about the last debate. It seems like it was a year ago. But to me, that was... Donald Trump's last best chance to change the dynamics of a race that he is losing. He is in critical political condition, and he needed to change that. And instead, what he did was double down on the behaviors and the insults that have put him in this uh, predicament. It's not just that he mishandled the coronavirus. Even pre-pandemic, you and I talked about it many times, he was still an underdog for re-election, uh, more so now. And so it seems to me that debate just reinforced for the people who might be undecided or maybe leaning to Biden that they just can't sign up for four more years. And I was really puzzled by all the speculation immediately after the debate from mostly Democrats saying there should be no more debates. I will confess to you when I was watching that debate, though, it was really unsettling to me to say, I I can't believe this guy is the president of the United States. It wasn't just a bad look for America, which it was. It wasn't just staining one of our hallowed grounds in our democracy, the presidential debate stage, it just scared the living daylights out of me, you know, that this is the guy making all the decisions. And, you know, a pretty big departure from 2016, where he was still crazy, but within some bounds. But my view is, given his diagnosis, given the pandemic, given the economy, given the threat to try and steal the election, there's no more important time to debate. 
And, you know, we go back to the first televised debate in 1960. Kennedy Nixon in a television studio in Chicago worked perfectly well. I personally hate the fact that we have audiences in debates. So I think if you're going to do debates, there's a way to do this where there's nobody in the crowd. There's no Trump kids without masks. You can probably put them 20 feet apart, maybe even 24 feet apart. So there's plenty of distance and still have the debate because I think it's important. But, but what's your view on, A, are they going to happen? Should they happen? And what's the best way to do it? They absolutely should happen and they must happen because we left the first debate with a pretty big cliffhanger. And, and that's the call to arms by Trump of heavily armed militia groups that range from the fascist Proud Boys to white supremacist groups to the Oath Keepers, extreme militant groups. And he, in essence, gave them a weapons to the ready lock and load order. And anybody who thinks that he didn't is denying reality. Well, let's just look at what they think. They think he was giving them a lock and load order. Absolutely. Absolutely. And secondly, he left hanging in the, the air the idea about whether we're going to have a fair election and a peaceful transition of power. You know, I, I placed the phone call. I, and I can't remember if it was to Axe or it was to you on John McCain's behalf. If I recall, the president-elect got on the phone. I congratulated him and handed the phone to Senator McCain, who became the first person in the country who mattered, with all due respect, to address the president-elect as Mr. President-elect. And with that concession, John McCain commenced the process that culminates in the renewal of the American creed, the American system, which is the inauguration of a new president chosen by the people. Democracy requires one side being willing to lose and get you next time. Well, I agree. Honestly, I think the last part of the first debate needs to take central uh, stage in these next two. And we need to have a discussion about democracy and the peaceful transfer of power and voting in this country. So you made that call from Arizona. John McCain gave that speech from Arizona. We're going to dive deep in Arizona. So I want to ask you, you know, from my perspective, the Electoral College is a fascinating creature because, you know, it changes. You know, back in 1976, the states that Gerald Ford won were New England, all red then, all blue now. California, Oregon, Washington, all uh, blue now, all red then. Jimmy Carter did quite well in the South, even some of the Plain states. So the Electoral College changes, and Arizona is a state that really has not been part of the battleground discussion in a very, very, very long time. Clinton came closer in 16 than I think people thought, even though it wasn't a, a core, fiercely contested battleground. I always thought Arizona was going to be key because in a scenario that was a really close election, and as you and I talked earlier, maybe this one's not going to be. Maybe the bottom falls out for Trump. But if, if Biden won Pennsylvania, won Michigan, and didn't win Wisconsin, Arizona needed to be the replacement state. Those 11 electoral votes, I think, could be critical. It could be the tipping point state. So I'm excited because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast probably have gotten pretty smart about Pennsylvania or Michigan or Florida because we've had to deal with Florida, uh, it seems like, every election of our lifetime. But Arizona is a new entrant. And it's a fascinating state just because more than 50% of the population is in one county, Maricopa County. You have a lot of people moving into Arizona from California. You've got huge suburban communities, those women in particular, but a lot of male college-educated voters now, at least for the moment, trending Democratic. You've got a significant Latino population, which is almost exclusively Mexican-American descent. So it's also a really fascinating, diverse state. And listen, for me, 
listen, I just want Donald Trump to be declared the loser, okay? But like the two states that are in my dreams that I think would give extra special sauce to that would either be Florida, his newly adopted home state, that'd be the electoral votes, those 29 that crush his dreams, or Arizona, the home state of John McCain, an American hero who Donald Trump has maligned um, his service and his heroism and his memory. Well, I think it's certainly a state that's in play. It's certainly a state that we uh, are likely to see uh, Senator Mark Kelly come out of, who I think is an appropriate heir to the seats of Barry Goldwater and John McCain. And I, I'm sure John is looking down with a smile on his face on yeah. that race. Yeah. Well, Steve, I could talk to you about Arizona and battleground states all day, but let's actually talk to someone who's currently in one. We're going to be joined by Representative Raquel Tarran of Arizona. Representative Raquel Tarran was first elected to the Arizona State House in 2018, where she represents District 30 in central Maricopa County. Maricopa County may be one of the most important counties in the country in this presidential election. Before getting elected to the State House, Representative Tarran worked as a community organizer. As the regional director for Mi Familia Vota, a nonprofit committed to building Latino political power by expanding the electorate, and also as the campaign director for I Stand with Planned Parenthood. Representative Raquel Taran, welcome to Battleground. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for this conversation. Welcome. So are we. So let me just start with a question. So Arizona, you know, in 2012 when Barack Obama won re-election, wasn't that close, a little closer uh, than maybe some people thought. 16, actually, and it ended up being closer than states like Ohio and Iowa. 2018, a great year for Democrats in Arizona, including winning the U.S. Senate race. Now, polls have Biden's lead on average, uh, a, a lead of three points. There are some polls that show the lead five to six. So I guess, first of all, what's happened in Arizona to make it clearly a battleground state? And what's your view of Biden's lead? How durable is it? Well, first and foremost, I think it's very exciting that we are officially a battleground state for the last eight years. We've been calling ourselves a battleground state, but we haven't really seen the, the investment. And this year we are seeing how uh, both campaigns are courting independents, uh, some moderate Republicans, but the Latino community. The Latino vote is growing uh, substantially. And we all knew that the Latino vote was going to be gold for for Arizona to be a battleground state. And uh, what, what has happened in the last decade is that there has been an intentional investment in Latino communities of organizations, frankly, because it's been community-based organizations who have gone out to the field and engaged voters, uh, especially low propensity Latino voters and, and women and, and youth who usually don't vote and uh, now they're becoming frequent voters. And that's why I believe we are the battleground state that, that uh, is on the news every day. So we're talking to you, Representative, after the President of the United States and the First Lady confirmed that they have tested COVID positive. Arizona, particularly during the summer, was a hot spot, continues to have big challenges. You have obviously a higher uh, percentage of your citizens uh, are older than the American average. Mm -hmm. We've seen that Latino citizens in Maricopa County have tested a positive at twice the rate as everyone else. You've had huge spikes in terms of mortality in the Native American community. Just talk about COVID. Obviously, you uh, as an elected official are dealing with a lot of the substantive issues, mm -hmm. but politically, has Trump's mishandling of this, denials, now we see it's affecting him personally. How do you think that's played in Arizona politically? 
I think uh, he's shown a lack of leadership and people have seen it. And I um, I do represent Legislative District 30, which has the lowest income in the state. Twenty nine thousand dollars is the median income in the in, in the district of the 10 highest zip codes with covid. We have four of those zip codes in, in this district. The vast majority uh, of the population is essential workers. They can't afford to stay home. People are seeing their family members die and uh, they can pinpoint directly to, to the lack of leadership, not only from the president, but from our governor. I don't know if you all remember, but during the Democratic National Convention, uh, there was a young woman. Her name is Kristen Urquiza. And she shared her story at the DNC. And uh, she is from Arizona. Their family lives one block away from the district that I, I represent. She took on to social media and, and, and created her own organization called Marked by COVID of how, how COVID impacted their life because their family believed in uh, Donald Trump and the advice that he had given that things were OK. So now their lives have been shaken because their, their father is gone. So people can pinpoint directly to the lack of leadership. And frankly, I would say the lack of humanity, because there seems to be no connection with how it impacts regular people's life. When we're talking about COVID, they do uh, pinpoint to Donald Trump. They do pinpoint to the governor. And frankly, I sometimes have to take the blame. I'm a Democrat, but uh, I still have uh, the responsibility of representing my constituents. And uh, I'm not doing enough per their view because we also have our hands tied because we don't have the resources that uh, have come from the federal government into Arizona. So they, the, the person that they see is their local elected officials. And, and unfortunately, we also have to take the blame for the lack of leadership of those two people. It is an extraordinary failure of leadership. It's also more than that. I, you know, David and I, talk about this a lot. It's, um, in my view, it's the most lethal lie in American history, the idea that this lethal virus that he knew about, he knew how lethal it was. Mm -hmm. And he went out and said, this is a hoax, the Democratic hoax, huge percentage of the country, certainly not a majority, but a staggering number believes this will all magically disappear on election day because it's a plot against Trump. His irresponsibility with masks, his traveling the country, spreading this virus everywhere he goes. Do you talk about it like that to people in the context of the magnitude of the lie of what he did? I mean, it's it's the most egregious lie in the history of the of the country. Yeah, we absolutely talk about the fact that he uh, didn't take action earlier. And when it was uh, brought to light that he did uh, intentionally not take action. We absolutely talked about that. But, you know, the the folks in, in, in my district, they're trying to survive at the same time. They're trying to figure out how they get their families fed, how they pay the bills, how they stay healthy. And it's on us as people who are both an elected official and uh, candidates to make sure that they don't forget where the lack of leadership happens. I am hoping to plan a uh, an event for Dia de los Muertos. As you know, November 2nd is a day that we celebrate the, the, the day of the death. We are going to have an event where we're going to have representation of all the lives that have been taken here in Arizona. You know, that's a very cultural event, but at the same time, it's a, it's a reminder of why we have to honor these victims who were gone 
too early without saying goodbye to their families in a very uncertain time. So we do remind them and we will continue to do so. And it's not just for the election. There's just nothing you can do to contain a pandemic when you have a third of the country that refuses to take part in the national emergency or the mobilization and refuses to act responsibly. And a lot of them have been agitated, antagonized by a propaganda network, Fox News, and its adjacent propaganda stations on talk radio, OAN, Newsmax, a litany of right-wing publications and internet sites, all of it combined to say to these people that this isn't real, don't worry about it, and it's caused Mm -hmm. chaos in this country. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing to watch Fox News this morning. And I don't know if you have, David, I um, suspect you have not, and um, it's healthy for you to avoid it. You know, looking at it a little, it's amazing that every image of Trump on Fox this morning has Trump wearing a mask, wearing a mask. I mean, it's, it's swear to God, it's, uh, I'm, David and I are both old enough to remember the Soviet Union. And I, um, you know, he's, I mean, it's, it's just like almost flat out Soviet propaganda. It's incredible. Rename it Pravda, Steve. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get Representative Raquel Caran's take on the Latino vote in Arizona. Welcome back to Battleground. Let's continue our conversation with Representative Raquel Tarran. So, Representative, before you were an elected official, you were deeply involved in organizations throughout Arizona, Mi Familia Vota, Planned Parenthood. So yeah. uh, putting that hat back on, uh, an organizer's mm-hmm. hat, when you look at the polls in Arizona, Biden's lead has been consistent. You know, he tends to be in the high 60s with a Latino vote with the potential to get into the 70s, which is, I think, where you'd want to be. But there is surveys both in Arizona and around the country that show Trump overperforming, at least from from my standpoint, with younger male Latinos. Do you have any insight on that? I don't have insight on younger male Latinos. But when we are talking to voters, these young voters have seen the impact of bad laws like SB 1070. For folks that don't know, SB 1070 was a law that was passed in 2010. It was a show me your paper law, basically law enforcement being able to stop you for the color of your skin. So take into consideration that half of the students in Arizona are Latino. They've grown in a very anti-immigrant state where the education system has been gutted. And there's been a, a lot of civic engagement around that community. So these Younger people, younger Latinos saw these attacks and now they're voting. So I think that that's going to be uh, that's going to be really good for for uh, President Biden. I mean, Vice President Biden. You know, I think I'm, procla- you know, I'm proclaiming it. Yeah, I think this SB 1070 is a particularly pernicious law because it presumes that Americans look a certain way, in this case, white, right. and that, hey, you papers, please. We shouldn't be doing that in the United States of America. I can't, I can't think of a more un-American thing to do. And I want to go a little bit deeper on the male Latino vote that uh, David is talking about. But in Arizona, where you've seen such extremism on the anti-immigrant side, I'm still mm-hmm. trying to get my head around what a young Latino male would see in Donald Trump. And I, I wonder... 
And if you think it might be this, in the 1930s, about a third of American Jews were opposed to any further Jewish immigration coming into the United States, which ultimately, of course, became a life and death issue as a lot of that immigration was coming from Germany or other countries threatened by the Nazis. And if you look at immigration, there's always a core in the second generation and sometimes in the first generation of immigrants that are basically, hey, we're here, we're settled, we don't want anything that disrupts our assimilation into American life by having new people, some of them poor, some of them which will wash up on us if there's negative feelings. Is it, I, I'm just trying to understand the psychology of, of how Trump overperforms in a, in a very specific male demographic. And the same is true for black men as well right now. Hmm. We do have to get over the hump that it's a very patriotic society right now uh, with the fact that we do have a woman who is part of the ticket. For those who are who identify with those values, that presents a challenge. However, I do think that Latinas they can bring the Latinos on board, especially the younger Latinos. The mom, the woman that has raised these young Latinos, she can bring them on board. I think the harder ones are the older Latinos who are already on their ways on, on a very patriotic society. When you look at the state right now, you know, of course, David and I met each other on the opposite sides of President Obama and Senator McCain's presidential election fight in 2008. How, how big is the Cindy McCain endorsement of Joe Biden in the state? Well, I think it's, it's pretty big. It's, uh, there is a significant coalition of independent voters and Republican voters. And having Cindy McCain come out in support of Joe Biden is very significant for those, those people who are uh, on the edge. And I, I believe that they sincerely uh, are, are moving forward in support of uh, Vice President Biden because they are worried about their party. Obviously, I am on the on the more progressive end and uh, I am in support of, of uh, very progressive values and, and uh, Medicare for all and all the good things that progressive Democrats are trying to advance. But I'm also in support of making sure that we are able to talk to one another and to uh, move our country forward. So it is very significant, not only for Republicans and independents, but I do believe that it's significant for, for Democrats that we that we see uh, a unity, true unity in, in uh, our state and in our country. Representative Turan, I was working at the White House back in uh, 2011, where Donald Trump, back then just a failed businessman and reality show star, really intensified the birther campaign against President Obama. And you have personally now had two different episodes where your citizenship has been challenged. And we apologize for that. So talk about, A, the personal toll that's taken. And if you mm -hmm. can, because I think people assume like the black community rallied around the president, they did. But there's a lot of people just like the suburban voters in Maricopa County who don't like the racism, right? Just talk a little bit about that dynamic, because mm -hmm. I do think the message is, you know, uh, if you are not white, you are not welcome. Mm -hmm. I'd assume that the politics of that in Arizona, which, you know, again, it's the sort of birthplace of Joe Arapaio, 
uh, but, mm-hmm. but we see how fast it's changing. You know, the first time uh, that I ran was in 2012. And when that, my citizenship got challenged, then uh, my reaction was, wow, I'm as important as President Obama. But uh, no, I, of course, it's uh, this is psychological warfare, really. It's designed to diminish people like me and our leadership. And frankly, just the fact that I had to go to the courts and, and take my birth certificate, my uh, long birth certificate, and uh, it took time, energy, and uh, it's just another example of the anti-immigrant climate in our state and in our country. And so this is what many people though experience on a daily basis. We can't forget that. Like he opened a Pandora box and him and, and Sheriff Arpaio, if you remember, he was the one who went to Hawaii and investigated the, the president's birth certificate. So we see it happening in the classroom. We see it happening by the employer to the employee, and it needs to change, and we need leadership for that. I think that this is such a terrible thing. I spoke out against the birther nonsense Mm -hmm. with President Obama from the moment it it came up, Mm -hmm. and it was something on the McCain campaign. You know, when the first rumors of President Obama's birth certificate started that we dismissed out of hand. And you know, just thought it was a detestable thing. But I I do think that this is so antithetical to the idea and ideal of the country in the year 2020 and what it means to be an American. And one of the things that has gone off the rails in recent years is American exceptionalism has been something talked about in Republican debates. And the question is always, do you believe in American exceptionalism? And the question is always put through a filter of nationalism and jingoism, right? That because you're an American, you're somehow special mm-hmm. or the country is providentially. Here's what makes the country special and exceptional. Mm-hmm. It's the only country in the history of the world that's founded on the power of an idea. And the idea was that we're all created equal We all have inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, we know that that perfect idea and ideal, that it didn't extend to everybody, Mm -hmm. that there was foundationally hypocrisy. The whole story of America has been the struggle to close the gap between the perfection of that idea and ideal and our present reality. That struggle continues to this day and will for the balance of our lifetimes. It's an imperfect country as it would necessarily be because it's a government of the people, by the people, for the people, and the people are imperfect. But as a general proposition, we understand today that that idea and ideal means everybody, everybody. The assault on the concepts of Americanism from the extreme Trump right have to be rebutted, have to be Mm -hmm. talked about. We have to start talking again, I think. It's an appalling thing to witness any American have to go through that their birthright citizenship is questioned on the basis of their skin mm-hmm. colors. It is disgusting. It is. Uh, it's it's unfortunate. Uh, but I I think your 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 point though that it's it's not who we are as a nation, and that's why I have I, I really have hope for this this uh, election cycle because I think the wins that we had in twenty eighteen 
was uh, it was not only electoral. It was I think it's a, it's a cry for to bring it's a cry to bring back morality into the country and, and bring it back to its roots. So I know it's not a given what's going to happen on November 3rd. Uh, I think that people will take action, that uh, we're seeing more and more people be involved and there's more of us than them. That's exactly right. I mean, to your question about Cindy McCain and what I think about, like, I, like who would have thought that I was going to be aligned with Cindy McCain, right? In 2016, I supported Anchor Patrick and I was her political director. And now um, it, it's like we're on the same team. And I think that that's, that's going to be good for, for us. It's so amazing to see such strange bedfellows come together to fight for their country. It's actually a source of hope. Stick around. We'll be right back to dive even deeper into the battleground state of Arizona. And we're back with Representative Raquel Peran, representing District 30 in the Arizona State House. You obviously have worked for Planned Parenthood in the past and so understand, you know, both the substantive issues mm-hmm. around women's health, but also the politics around right. that. What's your view of how this Supreme Court fight is going to play out in Arizona, where a woman's right to choose, health care, pre-existing conditions are going to be really an active debate as people are filling out their ballot? Oh, no. Yeah, I think um, the number one issue here in Arizona is uh, is health care. We had more than 363,000 people benefited by the Affordable Care Act. One every three Arizonans have a pre-existing condition. So um, I think that's going to be a, a huge factor when people go out and vote. Obviously, uh, Roe versus Wade is a big one, too. I got to travel to El Salvador last November and witness firsthand what happens when there's a full abortion ban. And, uh, and, and I've taken the responsibility of sharing that with my fellow Arizonans. We cannot lose uh, Roe versus Wade because that does mean criminalizing women and women of color, particularly, and low-income women. So I think all that is also a, a mobilizer and uh, it's uh, not taking anything for granted. And then also, I mean, it's not only healthcare; it's... Uh, not only access to abortion and reproductive health care, but also I think that LGBTQ communities are are really intentionally uh, rallying their base and things can really change in the next 40 years. And I always share that I have a four year old and uh, I don't know what's going to happen in his life. And just thinking that we could potentially have such a conservative court that's going to affect the rest of his life is is. Uh, really worrisome to me and, and, and something that makes me wake up every morning to make sure that the next 30 so days are, are uh, full of action and not leave a stone unturned. So Representative, Arizona has a long history of voting by mail, something every election cycle more and more of your citizens choose to do. We saw in a close mm-hmm. race, uh, like in the Senate race in 18, it does take a while to count the ballots. But my observation was Democrats, Republicans, everybody was cool with that. That's what we do here. We count the ballots. We'll know eventually. So how is this election playing out for you in Arizona from a voting by mail perspective? Even in Arizona, you're going to have more people choosing to do that. Mm -hmm. But you guys have done this with success in the past. So I'm just curious, some of the challenges that may be uh, happening in other states, are you seeing them in Arizona? Arizona has done an amazing job in the last 20 years to engage our communities to vote early and to vote by mail. So more than 85 percent of Arizonans vote by mail. Uh, now, the 
of course, the uncertainty of the if your ballot is going to be received on time, if um, if we're going to like when we had the conversation, if if uh, the, the post office was going to be fully funded, all of those things, of course, play a toll on people. However, I do believe like we have worked in the last 10 years to work with voters to make a plan. And we all know that that's the best way for for people to to make sure that their vote gets counted. So um, that has not changed. Uh, the way of, of, of uh, reaching the voters has changed a little because we are limited in the contact that we can have face to face, because that's obviously one of the, the big the bigger ways that we connect with the voters. But people uh, in Arizona are used to voting by mail. Now, the challenge that we have is to make sure that people, as soon as they receive their ballots, that they mail it back in. And we want to make sure that they know that they could drop it off at any polling location. And we have more access to early voting centers during the weekend. So that has changed also in the state of Arizona. We have a Democratic secretary of state who's been very intentional about uh, expanding early voting centers. So I think right now that the, the bigger the biggest challenge is making sure that people have the right information, but they will be voting early. Do you have any sense how freaked out Republicans are in this state? Because as you pointed out, vote by mail is not new to Arizona. And there has to be sizable populations of Republican voters who are now listening to Trump and not doing the vote by mail that the Republican Party, dysfunctional though it may be in the state, has invested so much Mm -hmm. money over so many years to habituate people to voting by mail. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I think in a lot of places there's just panic among Republicans because it blows up the entire turnout game. Just like the president, right? He is criticizing the system, but at the same time he uses it. So the attempt from the president, in my view, is really to try to get those people who are low propensity voters, who are new voters to deter him from voting. I believe that those who are who have been voting by mail will continue to do so just like he did, just like the governor does. So I think it's more of a scare tactic for people who usually don't vote and who will be most affected. The challenge that we have as progressives or as a Democratic Party is that uh, that we need to make sure that people have the correct information. And that's what we're working hard on. I'll tell you this much. I'll make a prediction. Trump is going to lose and he's going to lose big. He's going to be humiliated. The Senate is going to go to the Democrats. Nobody should rest easy, but we should uh, prosecute the case and run up the score and be ready to spike the football with glee. But what you're going to hear over November are the shrieks and screams of Republicans crying crocodile tears (laughs) about how Trump screwed them by poisoning the idea of vote by mail. You're going to hear it everywhere you look. There'll be a Republican talking about that. I mean, that's that's what happened in 2018. Arizona turned purple. So the action is always in the reaction. And our state legislature did their best to try to purge the, the, the permanent early voting list. If it wasn't for COVID, I think we had we would have many more uh, barriers to voting because they couldn't get their bills through due to us leaving early. But they were uh, working on making it harder for students to vote, making it harder for early voting. So absolutely, I think like there's going to be a lot of reaction and we have to be ready to defend the outcome of, of the election. 
Well, listen, Representative, thank you for your time today. This was a great discussion. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. Battleground is a podcast from the recount. Thank you to Representative Raquel Duran for her time. Learned a lot from that conversation. Aliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Hallie Rogers is our executive producer. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 